Well, you know if you spilled, don't you? Mm. It's why I wear dark colours mostly. Mm. See, I've got some quite light jeans on. Yeah, and they're covered in stains. Yeah, they have coffee all over them now. Yeah, and I can can see that visibly. Even from this distance of a metre and a half. Sometimes I'll like, I'll get a stain. Oh, yeah. They might not like wee or something. Um. You're like splash back from a sink. The worst. If I, if I have just pissed myself. No, the worst is the way splash to back do with from that the sink. Is I just throw loads of water all over it. All right. Okay. So you go for complete incontinence. Like, yeah. yep. And I learned, I learned that technique. Mm. Um, it was on Southport Beach when I was a kid. And you know how long? And we're like a mile out. And we still haven't got to the sea. And I pissed myself. Yeah. Just in protest at how shit a beach no, is. No, just because there was nowhere. There's no cover or whatever i must have been at that age where i was a bit self-conscious okay i wasn't just dropping underpants and trousers to ankle and just lifting my shirt despite the fact there would have been no one else for miles around no no there. anyway so just in case what a doom buggy just came <laughs> hoping to view like ah! what are you doing <laughs> oh no it's all those people i wanted to be friends with but long story short i just sat in a puddle yeah just sat in the and like oh no i fell yeah, but if nothing else, that dilutes the piss. So, yeah. Well, no one it's can... It's smart the, move. The, the stain's not so centralised, then. Mm. It's it's more everywhere. <laughs> did he piss himself, or did he sit in a puddle? We'll never know. Both. <laughs> That's better. Hey up, guys, and welcome to another episode of Consistently Eccentric Were. For reasons beyond my technical understanding, I can't get my normal intro to work. It does give me an opportunity to say that you will hear me with a slightly different tone of voice throughout this episode. It's because I was uh, incredibly ill, very, very fluey, and I was sneezing heavily, which I think I've edited most out, but we'll see. Anyway, let's get started with this story takes place in the Victorian era. Ooh, I've never been there before. We have. I know, we go there every week. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Edward James Muggeridge was born on April 9th, 1830. He was the second of four brothers, and as a result, it was always likely that he would be the one destined to achieve fame and a place in history. Is that you trying to give props to yourself? I'm just saying it seems to be the second brother. Does it? It does, mainly. Seems to be the second brother that's the success. His father. Is that how you feel in our family dynamic? It's what I try to convince myself. Is it? Yeah. His father. I've got an award winning <laughs> podcast. <laughs> it's an award I gave myself. His father. And it's a runner up. <laughs> I'm never going to get to this story. Sorry, get into it. No, I just. Crack on. I thought, I thought, I thought we want more than just James Muggeridge. I uh, just want, I didn't want that to slip by without mm. the context because that was just for me. If people don't know, yeah, it was pretty much. I, I only put that into needle you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His father. I'm the second brother. I, I feel like that I, needs to I be. I feel said. like they've yeah. gathered that. <laughs> His father, John Muggeridge, was a grain merchant whose premises literally backed onto the River Thames in the appropriately named town of Kingston-upon-Thames. Mm. Not too far from Hampton Court Palace, which yep. is where Henry VIII liked to be. They weren't around at the same time. Henry VIII is dead by now. Although the family lived above the business, they were quite well off, as John had a side hustle selling coal to the bargemen who would transport his goods up and down the river. Although there was a bit of disruption when Edward's father died, when Edward was just 13, his mother Susanna and his oldest brother, John, were able to take over the reins of the business to allow Edward to continue with his schooling in the manner to which he'd become accustomed. Private school. <clears throat> yes, they paid for a bit more private schooling for him. Because, mm. you know, they, although they lived above the shop, they were still aspirational for what their kids could achieve. I'm trying to think where this, his life's going to go. You will not guess it. So there's a bit of money. There's a bit of money. Family business. Yep. Merchants. Nope. Nope. Okay, let's continue. I never know. Unfortunately for Edward, his older brother then died as well, leaving him as next up to support his mother in running the family business at the tender age of 16. Edward did not enjoy doing this at all. Where's the source for that? Well, the source is the context. All right. He clearly didn't enjoy it. He wasn't 
he wasn't happy that he was now the heir to a small, a small to medium grain and coal business in Kingston upon Thames. No, because he's rubbing shoulders with affluent children. Mm. Well, aside from anything else, yeah, aspirational children yeah. at least. Yeah, yeah he's yeah. he's seeing what what real wealth can do for you, so yeah. he's not wanting to just stick with what he's got. Coal grain. He decided that he wanted to see the world. He knew that the lifestyle of a provincial grain merchant was not going to allow this to happen. So he wanted to travel. He had a wanderlust. Uh, After five years of Edward complaining to his mother, she thought she found a way to alleviate his wanderlust without actually having him leave the country. Instead, she gave a 21-year-old son a day off to go 10 miles northeast across the Putney Bridge to Hyde Park in central London so he could visit the 1851 Great Exhibition. Ooh, See episode 8, which was also me and Jack, Click for here. more details on that. Click. We don't have a thing to do that. Still? St- still. Oh. So that they're just going to have to search for it themselves. Keep scrolling. Scrolling, yeah. Scrolling. Scrolling. It's oh no, you've pic- gone too far, go back. It's the there picture. It the, it's the picture of the elephant. Yeah. There you go. Edward enjoyed his visit, especially the American exhibition, which, despite the fact that they had severely overestimated the amount of space they needed... So the Americans were asked, well, how much of the hall do you think you can fill? And they were wildly optimistic, <laughs> which meant that when they turned up and they they saw the space that was so America. It, it kind of looks like an abstract art exhibit. <laughs> it's like one toilet in the middle of the room. <laughs> it was, yeah. It was like, it's like, what does it mean? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, like, okay, we're just going to have to spread out like a lot. Okay, guys? Just... <laughs> um, but they did include some some exhibits that won awards, um, such as Gail Borden's patented meat biscuits Oof. or portable desiccated soup bread, as they were even less appetisingly <laughs> called. So that's a stock baked cracker. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. <laughs> um, and as you know, Borden's patented meat biscuits are... Salty and dry. <laughs> they're a staple of every good housewife's cupboards yeah. and have been since that day. They also... Would you eat a meat biscuit for pleasure? I don't know for pleasure. I mean, I think if I was at the Great Exhibition and they were handing out samples, I would try it. Would you ask for what it was first? Mm, probably best not to. No. Yeah, I, th- I think I'd just go, okay, I'd try it, and then, oh, okay, walk away. Maybe it'll look appetising. No. But when they go, meat biscuit? And you're like... Ooh. No. <laughs> not me. Human. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm a human, not a meat biscuit. Um, but it wasn't that that he was really interested in. It was the award-winning examples of Daraga-type photography, which drew the attention of young Edward Mugridge. Daraga-type. Yeah. The Americans were undoubtedly the world leaders in this form of early photography and had already made their production into a massive industry, with around 17,000 Daraga typists making around 3 million images a year. I'm trying to think what Daraga type So you have a, a, a piece of silver. I already know what it is. Yeah, yeah you have a silver plate. Yeah. You treat that so it's photosensitive, <clears throat> and then you, you put it in the camera and you expose it. But the exposures are about yeah, 30 the, minutes the or long something. exposures. Yeah, yeah. The other thing is it's not a negative, so you can't then make more images from it. You make a Daraga type and it's... It's like a Polaroid. Yeah, it's a one-off. Yeah. thing but they taken it as far as they could they made it super sharp they taken down the amount of time it took for it to actually expose so the americans are, were tip top when it came to this form of photography and young mr muggeridge saw this and he was like that's interesting he saw all those victorian pictures of families not smiling <laughs> yeah it was mainly well it was stood in front of them mostly um obviously portraits because that seemed to be the thing but there were also some pictures of America itself, oh, some no. landscapes. And he, he got his first glimpse of this great untamed land, just just a stone's throw across the entire Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. Just, yeah. The new American concept of industrialising art appealed to the businessman in Edward Mugridge because he was his father's son. Although he didn't like the grain business, he did understand business. Yeah. And he decided there and then that he needed to emigrate in order to find his true calling in life. His mother was not best pleased with this decision, but luckily her third son, George, was now of age to help in the family business. So she was able to reluctantly let Edward go. 
Yeah. As long as she had a well, she, son. She couldn't stop him, really. No. No. It was, you know, it was Muggeridge and son. So she's like, she knew as soon as he came back from the Great Exposition. Ex- expedition, I said. <laughs> the Great Exposition, yeah. Yeah, yeah. She's she was just like, like, oh, oh fuck. I really, I really miss, miss. <laughs> Mother, I saw things. <laughs> what? I I did not think the 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 consequences of this through at all. Okay, shit. I'm going to America. Uh, his grandmother, she was a bit more supportive. Uh, she tried to give him some money for the trip. However, he returned this to her, saying, "No, thank you, Grandmama." Spat in her face. I'm going to make a name for myself, and if I fail, you will never hear from me again. Yeah, she's like a bit of pressure on. This is he? it. This is. Yeah, yeah. I'm either going to make it there. Or I, I I'm not going to make it kill, anywhere. Yeah, I'm da, well da, da. <laughs> so, in the autumn of 1852... Aren't teenagers just awful? Well, he's not a teenager. He's 22 at this point. Uh, Edward Muggeridge got on a boat bound for New York City. However, by the time he arrived, he decided that Muggeridge was not a good name for an up-and-coming business entrepreneur. So he changed it. Ooh, let me guess. Photography. Is it photography related? No. He's not Kodak now. <laughs> no. He changed it from Muggeridge to Moigridge. Ooh. Yeah. Which was much better, as I'm sure you'll agree. Moigridge. Is it spelt the same? Uh, no, it's meant spelt M-U-Y-G-R-I-D-G-E. Moigridge. Edward had decided that he could make money taking advantage of the cheap cost of binding books in America. So he, impo- he imported unbound manuscripts from England and then had them bound on arrival. He could then undercut his competitors, who were just importing finished books, and still pocket a tidy profit. The business grew well, and soon Edward was also exporting American books to London for Johnson Frying Company. So he had a little import-export business going on. Yeah. From New York. It served him well, isn't it, the grain? Yeah. You know, I I was poo-pooing the grain. And he didn't know at the time what he was learning. And in many ways, aren't books just like large bushels of grain... Yeah. Or small bushels of grain. How big's a bushel? I don't know what a bushel is. It's an archaic measure of wheat and grains, <laughs> but I don't know how it's big just, it is. It, it's probably as big as you can carry. <laughs> One bushel. On your back. Yeah. <laughs> a backful, a yeah. bushel. Uh, during his three years based in New York, Moigridge was able to travel up and down the eastern seaboard, roaming as far as New Orleans to sell his books. Yeah, However, quite a distance. Oh, yeah. He was really... He was a go-getter. This is him in his early 20s, you know, trying to make a name for himself. However, a photographer friend of his managed to convince young Edward that it was the other side of the country where the real fortunes could be made. Mm. The gold rush in California started when a man named James Marshall found a few little nuggets in January 1848. By the following year, over 90,000 people had rushed to the area to try and strike it rich. This is the origin of the football team San Francisco 49ers name. So the 49ers were all the people who went over in that year right. as part of the first gold rush. San Francisco itself had been a town of less than 1,000 people in 1848, uh, and a quarter of that were Mormons. Hmm. But by the following year, all those people had come in, uh, and by the time Edward was going over, seven years later, it had about 35,000 people. So, yeah, it had gone from 1,000 to 35,000 in seven years, which is... Did it have the infrastructure for that? No. I imagine there's still the same amount of toilets as there was <laughs> when there was a thousand people. Probably. And Big dysentery line. was rife. Yeah. <laughs> there was one flushable toilet in all of California. Oh, who let the... Who, who did that guy tell in confidence well, he, that he'd he, found... A nugget the size of my fist. He was working on a lumber mill, so I think he went to his boss and went... Hey, look what I found. And then, yeah, his boss... Look at this shiny stone. His boss probably <laughs> turned around and went, right, we're not going to cut down trees anymore. We're all going to pan for gold because that's much more valuable than the wood. Um, and then all of those guys sort of told their families back over in the east, come over. Quick. Yeah, quick, quick, before everyone hears about this. And it didn't really help. Um, not fancying the 15-week overland slog to get there that... As the Donner Party had found out in 1846, might include a spot of surprise cannibalism. He elected to go via sailing boat around Cape Horn. So it's Argentina, you go all the way yeah, around. Yeah, so well, they didn't have the Panama Canal or anything. Not at this point. Right. It's actually Paraguay where the Cape Horn is located. Is yeah. Um, 
thought it was Argentina right at the bottom. No, Paraguay has a thin strip that takes in the very tippity bottom. Oh, and then it's Chile up the left. Yeah. Right. And Argentina and Brazil are on the right. Oh, it's Argentina landlocked. No, it's a coastal town. It just doesn't have the very bottom tip. Coastal town. Coastal town. It's, I believe it's an up and coming. Coastal town. Argentina. It's, it's like Bogner Regis. You know, it's just yeah. a small little place. It's all fine. Uh, yeah. So there were there were really two options. You could either do the overland route, which meant you were going through the wilds of America. You were going through um, Native American lands, all the animals and the weather. Because you had to go across the the Appalachian Mountains at one point, and Did if you go through you, the desert at the end, you, oh, you, you you hit deserts, you hit <laughs> you hit all of the extremes. How do you pack for that? <laughs> you just pack everything. That's why they went with massive carts. But yeah, what they found was if you if you set off a bit too late in the year, you will get stuck, and that's what happened to the Donner Party, God. and a lot of them ended up dying, and because they were desperate, and because there was no, they basically just had to last until it thawed. Uh, they ate the bodies. And you just don't know how long it's going to take. No. And the worst bit is, they all then just carried on to California. Yeah. So they all just had to continue. Like, there was this hellish year. And then it was, okay, we're just going to have to try and forget that and carry on with our lives. Because yeah. what just else do you do? Staring into the distance for yeah. five seconds. Just oh, remembering no. another moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, that happened. So he decided, no, he's going to go around the Cape. Sensible business decision. I mean, what the seas like around there? Uh, they're not brilliant, but most of the time you're hugging the coast, and well, you've got the Pacific smashing into the Atlantic, haven't you? Once you, hit, yeah, yeah. Well, both of the capes are like that, but that was the only little hairy bit, and he he made it successfully. Oh, fair enough. How yeah. long does it take that way? I think it takes less time. It's still measured in weeks, but it's not fifteen weeks. You're not looking at a three month trip across the center of the continent. You're kind of looking at. Five to six week boat you've journey. Sort of, you've grown a nice stubble. You've yeah. grown a full beard. Mm. Yeah. So as a businessman, you want to get there and start setting up as quick as possible, yeah. don't you? So that's the quickest route. Moigridge, he opened his own bookstore in the city centre of San Francisco and was soon making a tidy profit. He also began dealing in photographs, mm-hmm. buying and selling daguerreotypes and cheaper Baxter's oil prints to the social climbers of the new city. What's an oil print like a reproduction of a photograph? Yeah, yeah. So these, there were other types of photography which would produce negatives and you could then make really cheap copies on this wax paper. Right. And it was like, if you were rich, you'd get a daguerreotype because they were really, in terms of the definition and how fine they were, they were leaps and bounds above this other thing that was quite fuzzy. But the fuzzy one was ultimately, it was reprintable so you could make multiple copies and you could sell more. Right. So it's that kind of, do you want the high there's quality a, there's version? There's a similar version of, of that when they were uh, first recording like songs and stuff. Mm. And I forget what the guy's name was. He was a blues singer, but he only had one song. And uh, he'd have to he'd perform it live and that would cut it to a wax, a wax cylinder. Um, and he there's something like, he did about 5,000. That's all he did all day, sing the same song. So that you couldn't reproduce it. Mm. So you, you just got to do it over and over. And that was his life, just singing one song. Wow. Yeah. How did how did he go mad? Because I'm assuming he went mad at some point. I don't know. <laughs> Might have been raking it in. Mm. <laughs> Just with one song. Yeah. Oh, well, to be honest, there's plenty of one-hit wonders out there. It's not like we still don't do that for people. Um, <clears throat> Moigridge, he himself made money hand over fist, and he was made a director of the San Francisco Mercantile Library Association in 1858. So he got a, a position uh, recognised by the 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 people of San Francisco for how good at business he was. So everything's going really, really good for Moigridge here. Uh, and all in all, it seemed like he found his niche. He was a good businessman, good business sense. And he wanted to share his success with his family. So he invited his younger brother, George, to join him in his business. George made the trip out, uh, but then immediately died of tuberculosis. Oh, this didn't seem to bother Edward too much, though, because he did still have one living brother, his youngest brother, Thomas. And they were the same clothes size. <laughs> well, Thomas, again, like like a, uh, like George had before him, he took a trip across to America and he was more than happy to take over running the business in San Francisco from Edward because Edward's plan was to leave his little brother in charge so that he could go on a grand tour of America and Europe to find new stock that he could import and sell for profit. Oh, man. So he's looking to expand his business dealings. He set off on July 2nd, 1859, hitching a lift with the Butterfield Overland Mail Coach. 
Do you want me to say something about that? <coughs> wonderful, I, wonderful thing. I, I thought you were going to say something with your reaction when I said butter, <laughs> the but- Butterfield. You're like, <gasps> the Butterfield Overland Mail Coach. Uh, You're thinking the Butterfield Diet Plan. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what <laughs> Well, the Butterfield Mail Coach, it went through the heart of the country, so it went all the way through centre of America. This proved to be a mistake. The coach was descending a particularly steep hill outside of Mountain Station, Texas, mm. when the brakes failed. The coach flew off the road and hit a rather big tree. One of the passengers died, and Edwards was thrown from the coach headfirst into a rock. He woke up nine days later in a bed in Arkansas, 180 miles away from the scene of the accident, with a massive scar on his forehead. Was the tree okay? The tree was fine. The tree barely noticed. Edward, though, he had double vision, and he'd lost his sense of both smell and taste. He decided he wasn't going to continue his grand tour of America and Europe at this point, and instead he returned... Uh, to England to recover where he was treated by Dr William Gull God, his, his brother's just took over his wonderful life yeah and he's this he's had a horrific shell of a man he's had this horrific brain injury and has had to go back to England to live with his mother who's yeah. like finally one of my sons is here to run the grain company that's it could you just lug this bag of coal to uh, Mr Jenkins' house <laughs> I've got double vision I had an empire mother <laughs> <laughs> well no he was treated by Dr William Gull who you won't know but some people believe that Dr. William Gull will go on to become Jack the Ripper. Mm. He's one of the suspects in the Jack the Ripper case. Edward had experienced severe frontal lobe trauma, and this had manifested as a complete change in his personality. I've heard a lot about this. Mm. There's a lot of comedians. Is that Roseanne Barr? Mm. She was in a car crash when she was a kid. Right. And it, it, it makes you more impulsive. Mm. It does. Or it can. Yeah, impulse. It affects impulse control. Yeah, yeah. So, gone was the shrewd businessman. Edward began taking risks as a venture capitalist, quickly seeing his ventures in silver mine and the Bank of Turkey um, result in a failure. So he invested in a silver mine and it didn't find any silver. And Turkey. (laughs) And when you have a mine and you don't find the thing you're looking for, what you essentially have is a very large, expensive hole. Yeah. Uh, So that didn't work. And then he invested in the Bank of Turkey. It's that panic when you're trying to reclaim your losses and you're like, rocks, rocks for sale, <laughs> many sizes, you there, Mrs. <laughs> Want to buy some rocks? Oh, God bless him. Well, no, he just filed for bankruptcy because that's something you can do in America. You can just go, well, I'm out. <laughs> this was a mistake <laughs> from start to finish. Will you be paying your workers? No. no. I like smoke. <laughs> I need to leave. I need to leave now. Um, he was moody unpredictable and he stopped taking care of his appearance growing a large untamed beard and wearing crumpled and stained clothes in keeping with having a new personality edward decided to change his name again this time to edward moybridge with edward spelt e-a-d-w-a-r-d so he didn't change his name <clears throat> well he did because it was mugridge so now it's moybridge but it was, it was mugridge Moy- moyridge moygridge and now it's moybridge so his surname's changed twice, and he's now decided to change the spelling of his first name for good measure. It's not very creative, is it? You just pick a new name. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. He's he's still essentially, you know, one step away from Ed, Edward Muggeridge, but it's yeah. Edward Muggeridge. Um, so Muggeridge. Uh, and re- just, <coughs> just developed like a speech impediment from brain damage. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's Muggeridge. My brain. Oh, now you're making me sad. Yeah. Stop it. There was nothing to say in a speech yeah. impediment. Um, but he also decided he no longer wanted to be a businessman. He wanted to have a career in photography. Oh, good man. Mm. No one knows exactly when Moybridge had actually learned to take photographs. I'm sure dealing with it, he's going to understand the basics. Well, yeah, but, you know... It was very like... In the same way, just because you've been an executive producer on a film doesn't mean you're an actor. You buying and selling photographs doesn't mean you can take photographs, especially back when the process was very much, you know, there was a lot more skill involved. Um, And no one knows where he learnt and how he learnt to take photographs. The best guess, though, is that it was taught by a Mr Brown, the town beadle in Kingston-upon-Thames. And if you want to know what a beadle is... Is this the guy... That brownie was made out of what Kodak? Nope. The first like popular consumer camera. 
right? Was called a brownie. I'm pretty sure. I I don't think it was because this this sort of came out in the wash from someone doing some research and going, well, actually, the town beadle was interested in wet plate photography, right? Um, and Moybridge was in the town at the same time <clears throat> as this guy was getting interested in photography, and it's likely that he taught him the process, right? But a beadle is someone who um, sort of shouts. It's kind of like a town crier, essentially. Oh, okay. Hear ye, hear ye, kind of guy. Yeah, and he, he'd been messing about with the new wet plate method. The process for wet plate photography involved mixing a light-sensitive concoction and spreading it over a glass plate, like a crepe, you know, like when you're making yeah. pancakes, um, before sealing it into a camera and taking the shot. It was difficult to master, required a dark room to be close by, but it combined the sharpness of the daguerreotype with the reprintability of other forms of photography. So it's kind of a nice halfway house between the two. You got very nice sharp images. Is it like silver nitrate? Yeah, yeah. Right, right okay. You got very nice sharp images with this wet plate photography, but also you could churn them out. Yeah, and the quality is like stunning. Yeah, because they're so large, um, and because it's a whole setup, you need bellows and stuff. <laughs> Well, no, it's one for, it's, the photographs are one for one in terms of reproduction. So if you want a really large image, you need a really large glass plate and a massive socking camera that you're going to put right, in. Yeah. So, yeah, it is a case of there are still limits to the art form at this point. Muybridge returned to San Francisco to set himself up, but found he now lacked the empathy needed to do portrait work because people found him hostile, creepy and weird. So he's going landscape. Oh, yeah. So he built a portable dark room on the back of a two-wheeled cart, which he called Helio's Flying Studio, which was possibly a nod to heliography, which was the first photographic process ever invented by Joseph Nisphore Nipis around 1822, a Frenchman whose name I cannot pronounce. Yeah, heliography, how's that work? I don't know. It was just the uh, when I looked into it... Well, I've got a... Um, it was the original way of doing it. Sienna type set up there. Okay. Well, this can be a side, you can cut this out. Mm. But it's just interesting. So I've got uh, UV light yep. in that box. Okay. And then it's got this light sensitive, um, it's like a paint that you paint on paper. Right. And then it leaves in, in a sh- the shadow or whatever. Okay. So you use like, um, you know, you put a, like a fern on it or some flower or whatever and then you... You, you shine the UV light on and you get... 25 <clears throat> minutes. So it does silhouettes. Bit more than a silhouette, right? Because it'll because it's really sensitive to different light changes. Oh, so you get like the the so like a you know like a petal that's not as thick as the leaf that'll come through a bit more and and but then the veins in the ah oh, right so it gives you more detailed will, stuff will block it more than the bits in between. It's quite cool. That is cool. Yeah, hmm. I don't know if that's what heliography anyway, was. Cut that out. That's yeah. for you. Thank you. Yeah. So he had his Helios Flying Studio, and he began taking pictures of San Francisco itself, selling the pictures as stereos, which mimicked depth by having two slightly different images, one for each eye. So people would have, essentially, a a contraption that they'd wear on their face, and the two images would be slotted in to two holders at the back. That's meant, so he he took them on two cameras that were no, side by side one camera with two pinholes and you'd have two separate so you take the photo as if it's like mimicking yeah, yeah. the human eye and that they were really popular yeah I bet uh Moybridge found his images like i said very popular and showed a great ability to edit images both in the camera and in the darkroom superimposing images over each other and editing the backgrounds for more dramatic impact so he'd paint Mm-hmm. You know, on the negative, if you wanted the clouds to look a bit more moody, paint on that and then reproduce his edited version. In 1867, he felt confident enough in his skills to take his studio to Yosemite National Park to photograph the untamed wilderness, coming away with nearly 200 images that immediately made him one of the most well-known photographers on the Pacific coast. How do I not know this guy? Well, you're learning about him now. But yeah, so he went... <clears throat> People had taken photos in Yosemite before... But he went, and because he had no sense of danger, no impulse control, if he saw a shot he wanted, he would find a way to get his equipment to that point. And there are pictures, he's he's got some sort of self-portraits where he is sat on the very edge of a rock, looking down on like a thousand foot drop, and he's just not bothered at all. So 
his 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 pitches could be exactly the way he wanted them to be because it didn't matter what risks he needed to take to get the shot. He would, yeah, whatever. Yeah. To the point where he'd have people sort of helping to carry his equipment at times through his career, and they would all refuse to go any further. And he'd go, all right, fine. Chuck a load of stuff over his shoulder and just go off into the wilderness a bit and then come back a few hours later all happy that he got the shots he wanted. Brilliant. Because I thought it was Ansel Adams that popularised Yosemite. Like I say, there were other people taking it. This this got him his start. In no, well, this is this precedes him, but I, I didn't know. I, did, I didn't know who the other guy was. Ansel Adams? No. We'll get into that, probably, yeah, on I'm a later sure. episode. Well, he's not, he's, not Ameri- he's not English. Ah, well, then I don't care. So <laughs> his, his photographs of Yosemite, they weren't just you know big hits and popular sellers for him. It also won him a government contract uh, with a commission to photograph Alaska to try and convince Americans that it had been worth buying the state from Russia. Right. <laughs> so they'd, they'd just paid quite a lot of money for Alaska and a lot of Americans were going, what the f- are you spending our tax dollars buying this wilderness for? So they went, what we'll do is we'll go and take pictures of how great it is and yeah. then all the, all the people who are angry at how their tax dollars are spent will be really happy again. Yeah, and, and they got. We might get some people moving out there and yeah, going off grid. When because Alaska used to be joined, didn't it? Not by land, but it was like a frozen. Am I am I correct in that? Joined to Russia. It was like a frozen. I imagine at some point in the past, during the little it, ice yeah. age, possibly. Yeah. Those pictures were also well received, and further commissions to take pictures of army bases and lighthouses followed. It appeared that Moybridge, despite his brain injury, uh, had successfully transitioned into a second lucrative career. It's not despite, it's because of. Well, there's there's that argument as well, because he never shown any kind of artistic... Um, Flair. Yeah, well, yeah, just any Flaw. inclination to be able to do anything artistic up until the point where he'd had a massive brain injury. And then suddenly people were talking about his use of... Um, natural phenomena so we get fog and water and clouds and how he could create these moods and how it was really you know he really considered every aspect of the shot not just the framing but also which which subjects were in it and he always made sure that if he did have people in his shots they were always used to show the massive scale of the the background bit so he'd have tiny people in the middle distance just to show you know how magisterial the shot was right. and those were all ideas that he seemed to come up with naturally you know he just had that sense of what's going to make it work on may 10th 1869 leyland stanford hammered a golden railway spike into the ground at prominent at promontory summit in utah this officially connected the two coasts of america and more importantly for leyland ensured that his near monopoly of trade was complete like most photographers at the time Like most photographers at the time, Moybridge had taken pictures of the progress of the railroad as it snaked across the country. And Leyland was impressed enough to ask Moybridge to take pictures of his recent acquisitions of a big new house and a racehorse called Occident. What's that mean? I don't know. I just like how close it is to accident. Occident. Is this going to be the story of the racehorse? The racehorse does feature prominently in it. But Leyland didn't want a picture of his horse. He's getting stood kicked nicely. in the head, isn't he? Is he getting kicked in the head? And then he goes back to being just businessman. And he's like, oh, I just want to sell grain. Oh, finally, and he returned yeah. to Kingston-upon-Thames, where his ancient mother by this stage yeah. was just happy to have one of her sons back. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> I've been looking so much grain. <laughs> no, but Leyland... He mother, did... you look weary. <laughs> Five years, no sons left. I can only carry half a bushel. It takes me three weeks to load up one barge. Nobody wants my coal. (laughs) Oh no, poor old Susanna. But Leyland, he didn't want a picture of his horse just stood nicely in his stable. He wasn't interested in that. He wanted to see it at full gallop. Something that was not considered possible in 1862. Muybridge spent months developing a technique to take an instantaneous photograph and was rewarded with a fuzzy picture of Occident at full gallop that proved that horses did indeed have all four hooves off the floor at once Is when this, going full speed. When you go to like, what was amusement arcade called mm-hmm. in the Victorian times? 
same thing. Yeah, amusement arcades. And and you look into the Oh the magic eye picture things. No, well it spins and you see yeah. the horse move. Is that his photograph? It's not this photograph because this is just one, one shot still. of of a horse. But what he got was all feet off the floor. Yeah, and people there'd always been an argument about whether it whether horses ever did. And what you'll notice is from um, paintings before this time, horses are often shown with all four feet off the floor, but the two front feet are sort of stretched out to the front, mm. and the two back feet are stretched out to the back, so it's kind of doing a Superman leap. Right. <laughs> And everyone looks at those pictures like, there's something off about this, but I'm not sure. Why? Yeah. It's like, cause horses don't move like that. There's no point at which a horse runs. It's all four are off the floor where they're converting from sort of pushing with the back to mm. pulling with the front. So they're all sort of tucked up. Yeah. But not splayed out like Superman. Yeah. I love those old photos, though, because they also get the proportions wrong because they always make the horse's legs too fat. Yeah. <laughs> really odd horse. But yeah, he, he solved the argument because he's like, look, there you go. There's a photograph. Both Leyland and Muybridge, after this qualified success, were keen to refine the technique. But that would have to wait a few years, as Muybridge had met himself a female. Oh no. Flora... It's going to derail him. Mm, Maybe. Is that a pun? No. No. It would have been if it was Leyland. Yeah. Flora Shalcross Stone was a photograph retoucher and a part-time model, who Muybridge had used from time to time. He'd photographed her with a series of animals. And if you're wondering how, using a technique that took minutes for an exposure, they managed to take pictures of her with animals, they used um, taxidermy. Right. So there's a picture of her sort of cuddling a a tiger, um, and there's a picture of her just sort of cavorting with some fawns, but they're quite clearly dead. Yeah. (laughs) She was 21 years younger than Moybridge, and she'd come to San Francisco as an orphan with her steamboat captain uncle, who was called simply... Stump. No second name. No second name. Can't just remember his first. Captain name. Stump. Yeah. Had hauled over land as well. Yeah. Surely, if anyone should have come by boat, it was Captain Stump. But yeah, she'd come to um, she'd come to San Francisco not in the best shape. She'd married at sixteen, but had gotten a divorce in eighteen seventy on the grounds of cruelty, and possibly saw Muybridge as a safer way of gaining financial security marrying him on May 20th, 1871. While he could provide financial security, Muybridge didn't provide much else, aside from the occasional flying uh, visit for a quickie. You're going to say flying fuck then. (laughs) (laughs) Aside from the occasional flying visit for a quickie, he continued travelling across America for his work, spending a few months photographing the Buena Vista winery, which must have been nice, Mm. before returning to Yosemite, where he took amazing risks to get more shots, apparently not noticing that everybody else was looking on at him with abject terror. That being said, the couple did manage to conceive a child with the sensibly named Florado Helios Muybridge being born on April 14th, 1874. So he at least spent one night in their shared home around August 1873. Unfortunately for young Florado, he would inadvertently be the cause of his parents' divorce. Mm. Mm. With Moybridge gone most of the time, Flora sought to have some male company and quickly met a man by the name of Harry Larkins. He was a pathological liar who claimed to be related to British and Indian royalty, to have been made a major by Garibaldi, that being the man, not the biscuit, uh, and to have received the Legion of Honour from the French. Harry was actually a freeloader who saw Flora as an easy mark. He lavished her with attention, and she in turn paid his way, using Moybridge's money. The two, under the guise of friends, attended theatres and fancy restaurants, and Moybridge had accepted this for years, until one occasion when the two stayed out all night, which Moybridge, he felt that was too far. So he found Larkins the next morning and warned him, You know my right in the premises as a married man, so do I, and I shall defend them. If you transgress them again after this morning, I shall hold you to the consequences. And I suppose you know what that means in California. Shooting? Pretty much, yeah. Capital punishment still. Well, I mean, it's not capital punishment when you just go and shoot a guy. It's murder. But yeah. Yeah. Pretty much, you you stay out. Is it accepted in in the terms? Not, I mean... Would he be punished by the law for that? He would still be punished by the law for that. But I think his, his point was... I I would do it anyway. 
So you yeah. better watch and out. He, will, he would. Mm. But Moybridge, he hoped that the birth of their child would be a new beginning. And he gave Flora $100 to pay the midwife. She spent it on a night out with Harry Larkins. The midwife, understandably pissed off at not being paid, responded by sending a picture of Floredo to Moybridge, which he received on October 17th, 1874. On the back, it had a note from Flora, which suggested that the child might not be Moybridge's, as it referred to the child as Little Harry. Well, it's probably the case, isn't it? Mm. How long have they been coursing? What, her and Harry Larkins? Yeah. Um, pretty much since the wedding. So, right, yeah, so. Because Moybridge is like, right, that's done. I'm off to, you know, a winery for the next three months. Um, I'll be back when I'm back. Uh, here's some money. Amuse yourself, I guess. Yeah. It's probably not a bad thing. He wasn't happy in the wedding, no. in the marriage. Well, according to Moybridge, he was perfectly happy and she'd given him no reason to think that she wasn't. You know, he'd he'd assumed that, you know, this is what he'd been doing when they met, you know, when she was working as a retoucher um, of all these photographs, she'd see him bumble in for a few weeks, sort out his business affairs and then go off on another thing. So he's, you know, he's like, well, you knew what you were getting with me. Mm -hmm. I provide you with financial security. You provide me with, you know, a lovely wife that, you know, someone to come home to when I'm finally done with a big trip. He felt like they worked well. So this was quite a shock to Moybridge, really. He contacted his solicitor. She might have thought, like, I want someone married who want to stick around more. Mm, I can change him. Mm. She couldn't. After looking at the the image and what was scrolled on the back, Moybridge contacted his solicitor to tell him he was going to Calistoga to shoot Larkins, who was working at a mine there at the time. He then went to Calistoga and asked to speak to Larkins, who was playing cards with some other men. Larkins apparently asked, Who are you? To which Moybridge replied, My name is Moybridge, and I have a message for you from my wife. He then shot Larkins in the heart and apologised to the other card players for the interruption. <laughs> so I can sit in, I can make up the foursome if you want, but I could, I'd understand if you didn't want me to. When you've just shot a guy, mm. you're going to accept the apologies of the guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very sorry. Don't worry yeah, about it. Yeah, fine, yeah, yeah, good. If, if we, he was cheating anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah we're yeah, better no. off without Malmy boys. Yeah, Moybridge was uh, arrested and spent four months in Napa jail. During the murder trial, the defence team tried to point to Moybridge's head injury and abrupt change in personality as a sign that he was clearly insane. This defence was undermined a little by the fact that Moybridge himself kept challenging this assertion, saying he was perfectly sane, he had planned to commit the murder, and he would do it again as he was clearly in the right. right. He'd be shouting this as they were trying to go... Ins- he's an insane man. No, no. He started I, it. Yeah. Luckily for Moybridge, though, his jury was made up of 12 married men who decided to find him not guilty on the grounds that they would have done the same thing in his position. Oh, brilliant. Though they did admit that their decision was, and these are words from the court transcript, not in keeping with the law. <laughs> but so it's like, fine. Yeah, they're like, well, legally we can see that he is guilty of murder, first degree murder. And that he probably, you know, should face capital punishment. But, but I would like to be able... I would like this option. Yeah. <laughs> I feel I feel that I would possibly be painting myself into a corner should I come across similar Should they find the body? <laughs> Flora demanded a divorce, but it was denied twice. Then, in, 1850, uh, in 1875, she abruptly died. So Moybridge decided having a family obviously wasn't for him. But the kid's still there. Well... He sent one-year-old Floredo to an orphanage and set off for a photography tour of South America where he was greeted as a celebrity and hero wherever he went. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you remind me of those sad times, Floredo. Off you go. Um, Floredo grew up to be a ranch hand uh, and he basically lived a very unremarkable life until he was hit by a car and killed in 1944. What, the age of, like, 70? Yeah, so he he just worked as a farmhand... So going from being the son of a famous photographer who was making loads of money. Did he know he was the son of? Oh, yeah, yeah. And apparently he he definitely was Moybridge's son because as he grew up, the the resemblance was, yeah. You you couldn't deny it. So it was just Flora trying to be petty, I guess, or trying to hurt him. And it really backfired on her in a big way. What did she die of? Uh, She died, I can't 
remember. It was she just got a disease. It was like a contractible disease. I don't know whether it was something like um, typhoid or typhus or something. Yeah. She just caught um, one of those things and died. But it was very convenient for Moybridge that she did because um, she didn't want to stick around. Yeah, w- when she was sued for divorce, she was up to her third attempt to sue for divorce, and it looked like that one was going to go through, and she was going to get half of his shit. Right, and then she just died. So he kept all of his stuff, put the kid in an orphanage, and uh, carried on with his life. Really, right. going, oh, that was a weird few years. <laughs> all this time, though, somewhere in the back of his mind, Moybridge had been thinking about how he could take a less fuzzy picture of a horse in motion. And in 1877, he returned to Leyland and Occident to try out his new ideas. It required some retouching by an artist, but Moybridge had refined his instantaneous photography to the point that in 1878 he was able to use a sequence of cameras to capture the full motion of a horse galloping. These could be shown sequentially to replicate the movement using a device Moybridge Moybridge developed for the purpose that he called a zoopraxiscope, which was essentially a primitive movie projector. And before, when you said, is it like that spinning thing? That's his. That's his. Yeah. Have you seen made that? that? Yeah, that the image that you see of that horse running. Have you seen it actually for real? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they do at the end of the pier, I mm. think. That was Moybridge. To celebrate their collaboration, he made a three hundred and sixty degree panoramic view of San Francisco and presented it to Leyland's wife, which is nice. They would fall out irreconcilably a few years later when Leyland had someone else write a book on horse locomotion in eighteen eighty two that did not credit Moybridge at all. And as a result, when he tried to do a lecture tour around England, talking about the way he developed this, they refused um, to accept that he was an authority on the subject by going, well, the book about how this was developed doesn't have your name anywhere in it. Because Leyland, basically, I had an idea as to how we were going to do this. And I hired some photographer to do it, but all the ideas were mine. Mm. And everyone went, well, you're rich. Obviously, you have ideas. Yeah, it must have been your idea. So... Moybridge got kind of um, knocked back as a charlatan who was lying about how important his contribution had been, which, as you can imagine, pissed him off. And he was the kind of guy who'd hold a grudge. Is he getting gunny out? (laughs) Yeah, well, I think Leyland's quite lucky that he wasn't the second victim. Does Leyland not know that he killed someone? Yeah, yeah. Leyland paid for his defence. Oh, shit. Because Leyland obviously thought, "This this is a guy who can do the thing I want him to do. All I have to do is get him off a murder charge. Well, you know. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. I'd let it slide. <laughs> so, okay, we're even. Yeah. <laughs> you got me off. Murder. Uh, yeah. And you've taken credit for something I did. Yeah. Seems fair in payment. Um, But Moybridge had patented the method for taking the photos, which is a smart move. And though he did try to unsuccessfully sue Stanford, didn't work out because, like I say, Leyland was rich and he had been governor of California at one point. So he had all of the political connections. So it wasn't a case of you're going to get a fair hearing in court. It kind of worked in Moybridge's benefit yeah. during the murder trial. But then when he's trying to sue the guy who owns all the judges and knows all the best defence lawyers, yeah, he didn't get very Which far. Which is another reason why it might have got off the murder charge. Mm. Not that it was just paid for, but that... Everyone knew Leyland that it was had, the former well, governor. had all those people in the pocket anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we could... You could find him guilty, but then Leyland would be upset. Mm-hmm. Leyland knows people. Yeah. Some very dangerous people. You know grimy Joe? <laughs> Joe? Really? <laughs> I don't know. Why? What's wrong with Joe? No, that's grimy Joe. You could have grimy You're Steve. You're called Joe. Yeah, I'm called Joe. Oh. Aye. But yeah, like I say, he patented the method for taking the photos, so he was free to continue to use the process to take pictures of more things in motion. He took pictures of greyhounds, oxen, pigs, and more, before eventually turning his attention to humans in motion. At first he used strong men as models, but he couldn't help himself, and eventually posed as a model himself, wielding a pickaxe, whilst naked, smoking a pipe. Yeah. Again, this man, not insane. Is that photograph available? Can oh you yes, that? you can see those photos. Him wielding a pickaxe, because it's a series, Is it's he... him wielding the pickaxe is he facing the the camera well um no it's side on it's like these pictures but he also around that time he developed a bank of cameras in a semicircle taking photos simultaneously so that he could show an image from multiple angles 
predating the Matrix bullet time shots by around 120 years. Wow. So this essentially it's the same idea. You know, that you're filming the exact same scene around so that when you then... Cut it together. Yeah, you can do a, a sweeping shot. He came up with that. So his later photos of nude humans in motion, you did get the full panoramic view. He's a genuine genius. Mm. Having lost Leyland Stanford as a patron, Moybridge was looking for a new opportunity, a new collaboration. Uh, But instead of a businessman, he was approached by a zoo. Philadelphia Zoo, to be precise. They asked Moybridge to use his new process to photograph all of their animals. Well, the Philadelphia University, that was a few doors down, asked if he wouldn't mind doing some more nude humans too, because students are perpetually horny. Yeah. Yeah. And they can say, it's, oh, no, this is scientific research of well, he's, he's biomechanics. In, he's insisting it's him as the model for everything. <laughs> Just in different outfits. No, he, he did Just allow... different hats, because he's got no... <laughs> he did allow different people. He had... It's me as a sexy fireman. Some of the images, there's a woman um, putting a baby over her knee, both naked, and smacking it. Uh, there's two women throwing water at each other. There's two young boys playing leapfrog, again completely nude. Christ, Jeff. you can see all of these um, sort you of shouldn't. sections. <laughs> it's, it's art. You need to go and throw that computer away. <laughs> it's black and white. It's fine. Between 1883 and 1886, Moybridge took over a hundred thousand photographs, and in 1887 he published Animal Locomotion an electrophotographic investigation of the connective phases of animal movements. The images he produced are still used to this day as reference materials for artists in books called Animal Locomotion and Humans in Motion that have not gone out of print for over 130 years to this point. Tell me you bought a copy of either. No, no, I didn't buy a copy of either, but you can. Well, Christmas is coming up. Oh, is it? Or even next birthday, I'd like that. Wow. I mean, it's a strange point. I wish to demand it because now I'm putting this out onto the, you know, into the ether, so people will naturally want a follow up. Yeah. Either post Christmas or post your birthday. If you go, and I did get that lovely gift. I see what you've done there. Well, no, just just ideas. Yeah. Funny thinking. And I've got it written. Well, not written down, but recorded now, so I won't forget. In 1893, Moybridge at the Chicago, at the Chicago Exposition presented a series of lectures on the science of animal locomotion in the Zoopraxographical Hall, which had been built specifically for that purpose. He used his Zoopraxiscope to show his moving pictures to a paying public. The hall was essentially the first commercial movie theatre ever to exist. What year is this? This is 1893, in the Zoopraxographical Hall. But it's only like, what, 20 years till like Hollywood's putting out big... 30 years, maybe. The big ones. But yeah. 20s. He's, it was the first paid movie theatre, this. The following year, Edwin Moybridge finally returned to England on a lecture tour, gaining the unofficial title of Professor. Or at least all of the um, posters that I could see uh, said Professor. I don't know if he just gave himself the title. But don't you get just given the title Professor anyway? But I I don't know who gave it to him. I think he may have given it to himself. I mean, he's done enough to get to be Professor, hasn't he? Uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't begrudge him. I'm just saying I think it was part of his um, sort of Because you get celebrities all the time that become professors. professors of stuff. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it was his business brain. He still had some, some residual part of his business brain. He's like, if I say I'm a professor, more people are going to come because I'm, a, I'm a, an authorised source on all of this. Yeah. I'll be able to get a few more bums on seats. So I'm just going to say professor. Well, Silla Black was made professor at Liverpool University, wasn't she? Professor of what? I don't know. Just professor? Love science, I don't know. Oh. Teeth. <laughs> professor of teeth. I like that. Good old Silla. Poor thing. Professor of shucking coconut husks. Edward Moybridge spent his final few years of life back where he started in Kingston-upon-Thames. He lived long enough to see the beginnings of the cinema industry, making his zoopraxiscope obsolete. But he was reportedly not bitter, as he could see that his legacy was secure, as one of the men who had bridged the gap between still photography and moving pictures. He Amazing. died of prostate cancer on May 4th, 1904. He was naked, in his back garden at the time, attempting to dig a scale model of the Great Lakes. Again, this was a man who was not insane. I don't think he is insane. And fittingly, for a perfectly sane man who had many names in his lifetime... He got a new one post-mortem when it was misspelled as Edward 
Maybridge on his gravestone. Where, where is he buried? He's buried in Kingston upon Thames. Can you still see the thing? I think you can, yeah. They haven't knocked it down. So, yes, that is the life of Edward Muybridge. Yeah, amazing. A photographer and clearly sane man. Yeah, history of photography. He should be in there somewhere. The source I used was Edward Muybridge, Critical Lives by Marta Braun. And it is pretty much um, focused on the Leyland, um, you know, animals in motion period of his life. Yeah. Which... It's a shame because they kind of gloss over. I mean, all she the doesn't mention it. Work and... Yeah, all the really good stuff is like in very short chapters, and then it's like, right, let's get into the meat of it. Yeah, but that's what really pushed the. He was pushing the technology at that point. Mm. I mean, he, I suppose. He well, he was with the time. landscape work. Yeah, yeah. some but... of the glass plates he took to do the um, the ones that he did in Yosemite, especially the second time he went, were absolutely fucking huge. They were like a couple of foot by a couple of foot that he was sort of treating with this wet plate process and then taking these photos. And it's like, how did you even get that massive glass plate to Yosemite? (laughs) Even that is just mind-boggling. You know, he must have invented a special way of transporting these massive glass plates. I think we've got some pictures here, Joe. What, of Muybridge's work? You know, just for the uh, listeners to see. All right, you're, you're currently looking through your book of photography. You're showing me a, a, a naked lady's bottom. <laughs> and now a, a naked lady's frontispiece. That's nice. These these all appear to be um, pictures rather than photographs to I'll this point. i get to... These are photographs. Oh, we're in very early photographs. We're in 1850. When did he start? Um, 1860s, you'd be looking at. Right, so for the first ones where he's commercially successful. <laughs> 1850s, fair amount. Oh, that's the, a dag. What do you call those? Daguerreotype. Yeah, that's a daguerreotype. Yeah, you see how how detailed they are. Really spot on, aren't they? Yeah, and it was yes, but that was the only one you'd get. Whereas the other types, they were they weren't as clear, but you could print more and more of them. It's finally gone to the um, index at the back. No, it is in the first place, but he's, he's so well referenced. Oh, he's all over the shop. Yeah, so, I mean, most other people have... Like Don McCullen, do you know who that is? War mm. photographer. He's got mm. three... He's got two pages. Yeah. Um, Go down to... <laughs> Edward E-A-D-W-E-A-R-D. Yeah, like I said, he spelt it weird. 23, 215, 218, 219, 294 to 98, 300, 301, 300... Yeah, it's really... So 215. Yeah, he's he's that important to photography. Definitely. Amazing. There we go. Amazing. And I, I, I realise we can't... Like, the listeners can't... See. See this. Yeah. Um, but, sorry, that's the medium. Yeah. You, you see how the... the the quality of them is just stunning. Considering that was it, those are the ones of San Francisco. <clears throat> yeah, Yosemite. Yeah, so that's one of his. Yeah, so he was. You know, he he just came out the bat fully formed. He was someone who never shown any aptitude in photography before, and then suddenly just turned up back in San Francisco and went, "Look at these!" And everyone went, "Oh my, it's oh the, my it's god!" The, it's the sheer because it's it's not just taking a photograph. Mm. It's the expedition itself. Yeah. Like the country at that point in time, so you still got there's still war going on. Well, yeah, he did. I mean, I didn't even well, get into it. He did some war photography as well. And it's unexplored. Most of it's unexplored, mm. or at least from a Western, you know, yeah, perspective. But he he did war photography. He took pictures of the aftermath of one of the um, San Fran earthquakes. So he did a bit of sort of like news photography. He he dabbled he in everything. everything yeah. yeah, he even did um, you know the spiritual ones, the ghost ones, where you'd superimpose one image over another oh, and yeah, say it yeah. was a. He dabbled in that as well because it made money. Yeah, he was a businessman, a broken businessman, but yeah. still funny that just the impulse control goes. Mm. It's and just it... the, the thought that you know, you doubt yourself. Mm. It's just like well, that's gone. Yeah, there's there's so no you're just obsessive. There's no you know you don't worry about the consequences. So we also didn't. Uh get the outro added to this episode but you can find us on instagram at consistentlyeccentric.com you can search for us on most of the 
um, podcasting platforms. Whichever one you prefer is fine. We don't judge. Um, and if you want to drop us a line, it's consistentlyeccentric at gmail.com. I'll see you next week. <laughs>